When I was 17, I was a diehard lefty, so. It's thunderstorming outside, there's lightning. Hit me with it, come on! How smart can you be when you have huge mantids? Okay, he, him, go put your pronouns and go sit in the corner, I'll take care of this. It's just common sense. Hey, hybrid athlete, how you doing? Doing excellent, thanks for having me on. Do you normally go by hybrid athlete or hybrid? Do you like a, a nickname? People just say hybrid. I think that's, you know, yeah, that's really that's what it easier. is. So just before we begin, maybe you could give everyone a bit of an introduction in terms of both your background and what you like to talk about on Twitter. Uh, okay, yeah. So uh, short introduction on my background. I, uh, I started doing martial arts, kickboxing. I was really obsessed with, um, you know, just martial arts fighting and just like, things like that as a kid, I, you know, TV shows that I watched, I didn't watch much TV, but you know, the only things that I would watch or be interested in were kind of related to what I do now. So it's kind of been a lifelong thing. Uh, when I was quite young, I started getting into martial arts and kickboxing and I was extremely obsessed with it. It's really all I would do. And, um, I was just obsessed with peak performance in that field. You know, you could barely get me to do my schoolwork. You could barely get me to listen in class as a kid. I was just thinking about martial arts and, and training all the time. And uh, eventually when I was competing, uh, I competed for a very long time in kickboxing uh, while training a variety of different martial arts. I wrestled as well. Um, I eventually started incorporating a lot of strength and conditioning. I really realized the value of it once I became uh, more of a young adult. And uh, when I was probably about 19 years old, I really, really started to push the strength and conditioning in a more um, intelligent way. And uh, I got pretty good at it. And people that were on my team, the team that I trained with and, and my uh, coaches and everything started kind of relying on me as a source of info. I was very durable. I didn't get, you know, knock on wood. I didn't get hurt very often, mm -hmm. despite training like a madman. Um, I was very healthy. I was noticeably getting stronger and more athletic in a lot of ways to a way that impressed people. So I kind of became the resident source of info unofficially, eventually got uh, approached to just be the person in charge of that for the team, started taking people on and my life kind of grew in that direction from there. So mm. I don't compete in kickboxing anymore. But essentially what I do is I just work with a lot of athletes of all different types, uh, as well as general populations to just be uh, generally fit, but I have a unique approach to general fitness and athletic training that uh, is, is not entirely unique to me, but it's certainly more niche than what the average person does. And is that tied to the term hybrid athlete in any way? That's not a term I invented or anything, but I might have a somewhat unique spin on what that means for me. So my underlying philosophy about everything is uh, it really comes down actually to being a generalist over a specialist. And a specialist is what most people are, whether they realize it or not. Um, hybrid athlete typically refers to someone that either plays multiple sports or it's someone who does, you know, weightlifting and cardio. Mm. I think it's much more expansive than that. Um, it's more hybrid, if that makes sense. It's becoming even more generalist than people use it in that sense. It's more about really just being good at everything. So you can boost and maintain your ability to perform across the spectrum of human abilities. Um, most people would say, you know, I'm not an athlete. I'm not this. I'm just a general fitness person. Um, I actually, there are 
average person, but I don't think what most people are doing is actually general fitness. You know, I'm general fitness. Right. Uh, they're doing bodybuilding and cardio. That's actually a more specialized thing than what I'm doing. And while there's a ton of overlap, of course, uh, I'm not asking or make anyone do anything that's super bizarre, nothing they've ever like possibly considered before, but it is a more holistic approach to physical training that I also think is accessible and doable by the average person. And the reason why that's valuable is because I really live by the use it or lose it philosophy. And I think the way that a lot of people train, you end up getting, you know, usually in fitness, in order to market things, you get involved with a specific modality of training, yeah. be that bodybuilding, which is what most people are doing, whether they realize it or not. Um, a lot of people have gotten into powerlifting in the past 10, 15 years. CrossFit has taken a lot of communities by storm. Mm -hmm. And uh, while a lot of these things are good, they're excellent. They provide a tremendous amount of benefit in a lot of ways. Ultimately, you usually partake in them as a means to an end. And then you start getting more concerned with the means rather than the end itself. You start mm -hmm. marrying this particular modality of fitness that leaves a lot of holes. You know, people frequently see a lot of power lifters as, as amazing as that sport can be. People see a lot of power lifters and you don't really see great general health in a lot of them. Uh, you also see a lack of mobility. A lot of uh, problems occur as people uh, continue to increase their training age. And uh, they don't exactly become more athletic and healthy. They just become better at powerlifting and lose abilities in other areas. The same thing is said usually with a lot of other training modalities, people that get into marathon running or uh, another sport, even CrossFit, which does a great job of being probably, yeah, I've never done CrossFit, but it's probably the closest thing in a lot of ways to what mm -hmm. I encourage people to do. But even that's become a sport itself. So they have certain modalities of training and certain protocols that are specific to CrossFit competitions rather than the concept of just, you know, I like to think of it as just upgrading the human organism as much as possible. And that just makes you more generally capable of living a long, healthy life, staying young, being able to do the things that you did in your youth. And when you don't specialize in something, or at least hyper specialize in something, you tend to be healthier for longer and stay athletic for longer. Because when you're trying to chase the highest levels of performance in an increasingly niche area, other things have to be thrown out and have to fall off. And mm. based on the use it or lose it philosophy, they tend to go away. If you want to be the best deadlifter, deadlifter in the world, the reality is you probably will have to sacrifice some level of your mobility, some level of your joint health, some level of your cardiovascular conditioning, etc. But you can be instead amazing at being really good at a lot of things instead of being the best in the world at one thing. That's really what that's really how I approach it. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a cultural or generational shift towards playing one sport your entire life. It, that leads itself to becoming a bodybuilder long-term, becoming a CrossFitter. Um, my physical therapist in high school, he said he noticed more girls were coming in with torn ACLs because they were just playing soccer their entire lives. They weren't cross-training anymore. They weren't also swimming or they weren't also playing tennis or something that was training their muscles in different ways and doing those repetitive movements over and over and over again, six days a week for 10 years. Like you're lucky if you don't break something or tear something really bad. Yeah, it's un it's unbelievably true. When you look at a lot of athletes and athletic trainers that have been particularly inspirational for me for the past decade plus, 
you'll notice that they continuously expanded their repertoire of physical skills, even when it wasn't necessarily, you know, something that was obvious or even intended to transfer to their sport in particular. Um, you'll just notice that they tend to do, tended to do those things in the off season because it gives the body a different stimulus and it also gives it um, a break and some rest from the egregious amount of impact it's been taking during a competitive uh, season of training or, and depending on the sport, sometimes your season never really ends. So yeah. expanding your repertoire of skills and exposures to different modalities and methods of training, it's better for your longevity. And that ends up actually making you a better athlete overall in the sport itself. So there's really, there's really just two upsides. I think over-specializing year round, especially is, is uh, where a lot of people cut their careers short. So what do you do typically for your average client who just wants to get in the healthiest version of themselves possible, um, wants to be healthy long-term? Do you do weightlifting one day a week and cardio the next day? How do you kind of break it up and get all those different types of fitness in? This is really true for anything. You can't really separate art and science from anything. Mm. And I say this because some people will have this perfect linear template that they provide in a variety of situations. And I don't really believe in that. Anytime I'm working with someone one-on-one, -on -one, I'm really trying to give them my all and give them the best possible solution to their problems. And that's really what my job is, right? I'm just a problem solver for your fitness issues. Um, and so with every individual, I treat them on an individual basis. I'm just finding a way to get that particular person with their particular physical limitations and their lifestyle, life schedule considerations, what have you, and including their psychology and personality temperament. I, I make people do psychology tests mm. as I get to know them. Um, and, uh, and I get to know them as a person on the phone and, and just chatting. And I really hyper-individualize everything. So you'll get a slightly different answer depending on the client. It's, when I say it's custom coaching, it's, it's very customized. I do have methods and structure behind these things. It's not random, of course. Um, I have methods to my madness uh, to help organize answers, but it really depends on the individual uh, with a variety of extenuating factors. But generally speaking, uh, the way that I train everybody and what I encourage is uh, it's essentially just concurrent training, which uh, implies that you're training a variety of factors simultaneously. Sometimes we will do a variety of them in the same training session. Sometimes you'll have different days that emphasize them. Some days you'll have different days that specialize them entirely. Uh, it depends entirely on how we break up the week. But I try to get every single client uh, training at, the, at a bare minimum, every quality that, we, that I think is useful and relevant and healthy for them to do so. Uh, at the minimum effective volumes necessary for them to, you know, make improvements or at least maintain their health. And we abide by something called what, what I've kind of coined as my hierarchy of training goals. I don't know if you've seen this, but I have like this little pyramid that I share sometimes. I think I have actually. Um, yeah, that pyramid is basically, that's like the foundation you take to peaking your ability in whatever area. But at the bottom of it, it's just your foundational health that is being maintained and trained at all times. I don't care if you're a professional athlete uh, or you're my grandma, mm -hmm. that's you know making sure that your orthopedic health, your metabolic health and your resistance to disease or lack of disease, what have you, those are all in you know the best possible condition because I consider that the foundation for everything, uh, including for professional athletes. And then, uh, and then on top of that, you build a base of strength, 
aerobic capacity. You just need to be generally strong and generally fit. And I like people to be generally coordinated and athletic and just engaged and active. I think just playing is good mentally mm-hmm. and psychologically. Uh, in some case, brain activity and training is a big thing I emphasize, even when I don't mention it to people. Um, so you, you pretty much have to get those foundations in order for everyone. And then we go from there as you develop in the kind of, I, I consider it like the hybrid athlete philosophy doesn't mean one thing. It kind of gives you a wide variety of options you can choose to mini specialize in. Because the reality is I think you could apply the hybrid philosophy to someone who's a hiker or a rock climber just as much as you can apply it to a jujitsu athlete. Mm-hmm. You just kind of let them semi-specialize in one area after you build up these foundations. So I like to think of it almost like it's an RPG video game and you can you have your baseline characteristics all taken care of. We're concurrently training everything so that nothing ages and goes away as you get old. You remain a bit able to run, jump, sprint, throw, and move well. Um, but you can specialize some skills in certain areas depending. So everything's very individual, but I hope that gives some insight into it. No, absolutely, absolutely. And it makes a lot of sense with your background in MMA, kickboxing, allowing people to have that specialty, but also building the foundation of health. So this is something I'm interested in. It appears that in some of your tweets and your writing that both lifting and as I've called how to be ninja, um, that's an old video, have you ever seen it? Um, Where the two goals are opposed to each other. Would you say that's true? You're thinking you're coming from the place where most people think those goals are opposed to each other. Yes. But I don't, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I, yeah, so I agree. In terms of martial arts training specifically, for historical and cultural reasons, a lot of martial artists, at least in the West, have really shunned strength and conditioning and weight training and a variety of training methods. They've basically shunned strength training. Um, and that's a subject in and of itself. But essentially what happened is you have a cultural assumption that getting strong and getting muscular means that you get slower and that you Mm -hmm. lose mobility. And Mm -hmm. that's just completely untrue. Um, Essentially, the only place that you see that happening, and I mentioned this earlier, is powerlifting. Mm -hmm. And um, I I use a lot of powerlifting stuff. So I don't mean to crap on powerlifting excessively. But I just say that typically when people say, well, I don't want to get strong, I don't want to lift because I'm going to lose all these mobility and speed qualities that I need for being a good martial artist. You also need to be maximally strong. You really do. Um, You're really leaving a lot on the table by not having that. Uh, Most MMA athletes, the one area based on the UFC Performance Institute data, the one area that they lack the most is actually maximal strength. It's the ability to strain under load and produce the highest amount of force outputs. You know, you might look at a lot of MMA fighters and say they're strong. Sure thing. But they're usually not as strong as other power athletes like football Mm -hmm. players and whatnot. Yeah. It's ultimately... Martial arts really requires uh, every physical capacity and athletic quality imaginable, right? It's like the ultimate physical performance. But in terms of what you see in combat sport athletes, you largely see this is extra true for strikers and grapplers, but it's it's particularly true everywhere. Um, you really see that ability to produce maximum force is where they lack the most ability versus conditioning and whatnot. It's really more of a conditioning-focused sport, the way people train. Um, And this leads to a lot of people also not having an understanding of how to strength train because you have less people doing it, less people are good at it, and it creates this cascading effect where people don't even know how to strength train for martial arts. 
So you end up in a situation where they're only the only place they can look at is, well, what do these strength athletes do? What do these football players move like? What do they what do they train like? And they see these things and they see people that lack mobility. Sometimes you see like a power lifter who isn't exactly like the leanest person who would do the best in, in a conditioning sport like MMA. Mm-hmm. And they think these things are going to happen to them if they incorporate those elements of training. But the real secret to it is not that benching and deadlifting and squatting is going to ruin your mobility. It's more like just benching, squatting and deadlifting and not also doing other things that improve your mobility is what ruins your mobility. Powerlifting is a sport that by design, you're trying to shorten the range of motion in every Mm -hmm. lift as much as possible. So it makes sense that they never access long ranges of motion and therefore that goes away. Remember the, the use it or lose it philosophy. A lot of bodybuilders were extremely jacked, freakishly jacked on steroids, but able to do splits and have these incredible feats of mobility and flexibility that they can perform. Same with Olympic weightlifters who are also freakishly jacked and strong. But that's because those sports, they particularly, while also getting jacked, emphasized moving through longer ranges. It's really just mm-hmm. powerlifting, which has kind of been the thing that people point to. But all those things have added into people just having a really poor understanding of what strength and conditioning done properly can actually do for you. It should make you faster, not slower. Right, right, right. My dad always brings up how these ginormous linemen in football are honestly so fast off their feet, like a 300 pound lineman, just because he's jacked doesn't mean he can't be, I mean, obviously he's not going to be a wide receiver, but like they still have a lot of speed and that's why they're peak athletes. They're way faster than anyone else, you know, on the street. And the funny thing is they're not just, they're not just muscular. A lot of them are pretty overweight too. Yeah, totally. Like to compare, you know what I'm saying? So it tells you, it's like, what's going on there. It makes sense maximal strength and just being strong isn't everything that goes into speed. The speed is like very multifactorial, but the base and the mother of most qualities is your ability to produce force. And I've written Mm -hmm. about this a lot, but it's like when you're moving fast, if you can make, if you're strong, you can make heavy things feel light. And when things feel light, you can move them quickly. So I've noticed that as well, that MMA guys are all so wiry Do you think that's a function of the weight classes? Like this is all just an optimization problem. They're trying to be at the top of their weight class for their body type. And so this is the amount of strength and muscle mass that they can have on their body. Or is it a trade-off? I have this amount of time to prepare for this fight. Like it's better suited to be doing cardio, to be training wrestling and jujitsu than it is to be bench pressing even more than I already am. It's all of those things and more. And that goes for other athletes as well. Mixed martial arts and combat sports depends on like the most diverse set of physical qualities Mm -hmm. while simultaneously providing the maximum amount of constraints for you to develop them. Like you both have the weight class uh, and then you have a limited amount of time to prepare and you don't even have a full off season most of the time to get ready. You can get called in for a fight you know, last minute in a lot of cases, because this is the real reality of the, mm-hmm. the, the athletes that show up. It's not even a training issue. It's just an industry issue. Yeah. And then you also have the fact that, you know, you don't really get to even compete that often in a lot of cases. And if you compete a single time, even if you win, you might be out of the game for a year recovering from an injury. There's a million things that go into it where everything is trade-offs. And again, like what I do is I'm just a problem solver. I have to deal with this puzzle for a lot of people. I really would say that strength and conditioning for MMA in particular as an industry, as well as boxing, I would say, is really starting to sort of come into its own right now. Um, But it's been pretty primitive compared to football and track and field 
uh, even just a few years ago. Typically, it depends on the weight class. You'll notice that certain weight classes, people get more muscular and bigger. Mm -hmm. With smaller weight classes, you know, a grown man, even if they have a smaller bone frame, they're just going to be smaller if they're in that weight class because that's how yeah. they're built. You know, yeah. it's just what it is. And there is a thing where you are, you're optimizing someone's structure. Um, I did an entire lecture on YouTube about structure types. Um, one of the considerations for that is weight class sports. So you're trying to build the physical framework that allows you to have an elite an elite performance mm -hmm. um and with weight classes you are limited in that capacity i would also say though that there's a cultural element to it as well where a lot of the athletes are wiry somewhat because they don't want to put on muscle because they're afraid of it like it really mm. even at the professional level a lot of people are hesitant and a lot of them are wrestlers and they've been competing their whole life and cutting weight which isn't good for you it's like my least favorite part of the sport mm -hmm. um but, uh, you know, when you're young, this happened to me as well. You get scared of putting on mass because it's already so goddamn hard to make weight. Yeah. You're afraid of gaining one pound of muscle. If you gain one pound of muscle, you're like terrified that you're like, oh, my God, that's another pound I have to cut. And also when you have a winning combination in a fighter and whatever they're doing, it's working. In my personal opinion, it's your job to find a way to improve them. But it's also your job often as the strength coach just to make sure they don't get hurt. So instead of interfering too much with what's working, like the ceiling they have of what they can do that's already winning, instead it's more about bringing the floor higher so that they're just less likely to be uh, harmed during training camp. So it's more like I'm almost the health coach in some cases, um, and I focus more on just making sure that you're healthy rather than pushing you to improve the ceiling of your performance, if that makes sense. That makes a whole lot of sense. And this conversation is making me think, how do they pick which weight class is best for them? It's not like an AB type testing thing they can do. Is there? Usually what happens is we're in the gym, it's happened with me as well. You're a certain size for whatever reason. That's just where you're at. You weigh a certain amount and you say, I want to compete. And we're like, what weight class do you look like you could probably make? And then you just stick with that one mostly. And then you compete. And if you're doing okay, you stick with it. If the weight cut is extremely terrible for you, you move up one. If, mm. the, if you aren't doing so well and you're getting overpowered in your weight class, you might attempt to go lower. And that's just kind of, you auto-regulate it and that's just what it is. Cutting the weight just sounds horrific to me. The effect that it has on your body, I've talked about this before, but my brother had to cut 20, 30 pounds right before his rowing meet. And like, he's, it took him a year to recover in terms of his muscle mass, at least. Yeah, it's a nightmare. Yeah. And that's another thing too, um, is, you know, it takes time. It really does take time to add muscle mass. It takes mm -hmm. time to improve a lot of qualities. Um, part of the reason why people think your athletic potential is more limited and genetically determined, you know, the ceiling is lower than it really is, is partially because people underestimate the time uh, that it takes to accumulate these stimuli and recover from them and make the, the adaptations that you need to, to get better. So people sometimes underestimate that they expect these short-term transformations. And this just isn't realistic with anyone past the beginner stage. So when you're dealing with a professional athlete and like all the constraints that we have that I mentioned earlier, we also have to deal with the weight cut. And mm -hmm. the reality is with an MMA fighter that's actively competing, it's very difficult to put a ton of mass on them simply because we have to focus on so many things at once. It's a good idea to allocate, to not only add muscle mass when you have a chance, but to also allocate it properly. Like mm. when I talk about structure types, 
you you can have two people that have the same amount of lean body mass, but it's allocated differently on the body. One person might have more muscle in their upper back and in their legs, and one another person might have it in their biceps and their chest. And it, it might only be a slight difference, but it can make a difference when you're dealing with people who are very evenly matched and are fitting into this little weight class. If you squeeze into this weight class just by the skin of your teeth, which is what a lot of these fighters are doing, mm -hmm. the guy who has their alloc their muscle mass allocated towards uh, their uh, foot and ankle tendon unit and their knees, their hips, and their upper back and shoulders is going to be more secure and less likely that they get injured and more willing to throw their body around in the motions that they're going to need to uh, than the person who maybe has an extremely big chest and extremely big biceps uh, and mm. maybe not as developed in other areas. Every it, it really gets complicated. I don't want people to get neurotic about it, but the uh, you know if you decide to add a, a pound or two of muscle on your chest and biceps, that's a pound or two that you might not be able to afford to add in areas that might have a higher return on investment. Mm. Interesting. I've never thought yeah. about it that way. And that's genetically predisposition, right? You, are you saying you're, you're genetically predisposed to grow muscle in certain areas? Yeah, just like how you're genetically predisposed to harvest your fat in certain areas, hold your fat. Um, I mean, where your fat is, sure. Um, but in terms of muscle growth, people can have different genetics in terms of how well their different body parts respond to muscle growth. But overall, it would really just be the way that we train and the way that I train guys that are specifically competing. We try to emphasize uh, problem areas and areas that probably need more attention in terms of hypertrophy. But in terms of fat, yeah, I mean, you'll have a slightly different area where the fat, um, where fat accumulates on your body. This is most pronounced between men and women. Um, but between the same gender, you'll see people, um, you'll see people, collect fat in in a variety of different ways but overall if you're competing you're probably going to be fairly lean anyway it doesn't really mm -hmm. matter where your fat is stored but in terms of where the muscle mass is allocated that can affect your performance so you were saying that when guys are getting into the same weight class for mma guys who have muscle or structural predisposition around their ankles around their shoulders are going to be a little bit more resilient and to injury that is a yeah, genetic the thing or that's a training thing well, it's it's both, obviously. Okay. I mean, genetics affect everything, but I'm referring to the way that we train and what we emphasize mm. getting stronger. Because let's say I have two months. Let's say, and here's an, here's another thing. Sometimes people get injured or take time off. That's actually a great time to add muscle mass because they're going to be off camp for a longer mm. period of time. So you have more time that we can build muscle mass with them without worrying about getting ready for the fight. Typically in those time periods, you'll just emphasize strengthening certain areas that are more likely to be used in the sport and also more likely to be injured. And based on the data we have from the UFC Performance Institute, that the most common areas that are injured in MMA tend to be the foot and ankle complex, uh, the knee, the shoulder, and also the hands and wrists and neck. Mm. So those are areas particularly, it's a very wise investment to add a little bit of extra training to in certain niche areas. Those are not really things that you would typically do in a bodybuilding context, but those are things that you do want to hypertrophy and you do want to both hypertrophy the muscle tendon unit as a whole, which means the muscle mass and the tendon. And by adding a little bit more muscle mass there, this might add another, you know, potentially two to three pounds on the person over time, but mm -hmm. better that we add two to three pounds of muscle 
uh, onto their frame in those areas than maybe uh, adding two to three pounds of muscle on their chest if we have a lot of constraints and the person already has a tough time getting in the weight class. Does that make more sense? Yeah, that makes a ton of more sense. And this doesn't really apply to anybody. Well, it does apply in that you're prioritizing where you grow muscle, but it's really specific to the MMA sport where they have these four or five month camps before a fight that can knock them out of the gym for a year. It's a very specific phenomenon. Yeah, of course. And that's the other thing too, is a big part of the strength and conditioning is actually just keeping people in the roughest sport imaginable um, healthy so that they can continue to train. If you, if you have chronic injuries and nagging problems that prevent you from putting the same amount of rounds of practice in, you also become less skilled. Indirectly, I help a lot of people get better simply because I allow you to stay healthier longer and prevent these small injuries, which are usually inevitable from keeping you off of out of practice. But also it allows you to train at practice harder and for longer because you don't mm-hmm. you don't get tired as easily and you don't feel like you need to like settle down because things are getting too intense because I helped build up the foot and ankle so you can survive a lot of ground contacts. Mm. Your shoulders are very healthy. They're not getting sore at the end of practice. You feel like you can grapple an extra five rounds without having a problem versus Mm. it's very, very common. People won't say it out loud because they don't want to display weakness, especially to competitors. But um, people definitely cut practice shorter, tone things back because they they know they simply can't recover and handle more. My Mm. job is to to raise that that bottom line up that baseline so you can actually train skills more too. as you're describing training people. You have this super hot take that progressive overlord is a myth. Defend your position, sir. Okay, so where did you? I I don't think I said. Did I say progressive <laughs> overload is a myth? I don't think I said that. Oh, maybe it was just a saucy tweet. I think. Okay, so I think I know what you're referring to. I definitely <laughs> don't think it's a myth. When you have a general person that knows nothing about fitness, you have to teach them about progressive overload. It's a kind of a fundamental quality. The idea is. Training is just a series of adaptations. You're just stimulating adaptations to the organism. So in order to upgrade the organism, you have to stress the organism and then allow adaptations to take place, recover, and then re-stress it so those adaptations continue. But the way that we teach that ends up being adding weight and reps to everything every week. And that works really well for beginners. It instills the right habits. It instills uh, the habit and the behaviors that allow them to take notes during their sessions, take responsibility for their training. Um, and be present in what they're doing rather than just going to the gym. You know what I mean? That's what most mm. people do with teenagers, just go to the gym. They show up and then they just kind of mess around. Right. And uh, instead, by just by doing something as simple as introducing the concept of progressive overload, you create all these downstream factors where even just that alone helps the individual that didn't know any better prior to simply start logging their workouts and then performing similar exercises and trying to get better at those exercises through an objective metric. That's a good thing. However, what ends up happening once you get to more of an intermediate stage or an advanced stage is a lot of people, they become neurotic about adding weight and repetitions to every exercise as often as they can all the time. And the reality is you adapt slower as you get better. You get, a, you get diminished returns on each investment. And getting really good implies, you know, you really have to get good through that more advanced stage. And when you're moving through that stage, the reality is you're not going to faithfully execute every exercise the same way through the same range of motion with the same amount of rep quality control 
and you're not going to add a rep every time, especially if you're taking it to failure all the time. You might not even do it every other session. You might not even do it necessarily every three sessions, to be honest, in, mm -hmm. depending on the exercise in, in question. Some exercises aren't even conducive to long-term adding uh, weight and repetitions to all the time, depending on the movement that we're talking about. So the reality is with progressive overload is once you get past the beginner stage, you really need to be more patient. You need to kind of auto-regulate and like take these personal records as they come and as they're there and give yourself a repeated stimulus for longer periods of time to let the body and the biological mechanisms that need to take place. So you can actually progress at the rate that your physiology, you know, can actually do so. Instead, what happens with a lot of people is they're so desperate to add a rep every week or they feel that the session was a waste. They feel that the session wasn't productive if they didn't add one single rep. So they try to artificially add reps or artificially mm. add weight by cutting range of motion short, ruining rep quality, cheating a rep. And you're actually just ruining your improvements in that capacity. Mm. Whereas really it's like, if you just did that three sets of eight for two to three weeks in a row with really high quality reps, adding that, that rep to nine and three sets of nine now probably would have come a lot better and easier. But instead, you desperately started grinding your joints and smashing yourself to bits and just putting these ugly reps in trying to get nine, 10 reps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was kind of just giving you crap because I totally understand that I started really writing everything down in a journal like at the start of this year. And I noticed that I could go up Basically, every time I did that workout, I was doing like four different workouts a week. I was doing oxes upper lower. And now I'm on his PPL and I look at my logbook and I try to do it. And I'm like, dang, that was hard. I did that last week. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, I agree. And I also will just like switch up the rep ranges too. Like if the first set was hard, I'll drop the weight and I'll just go for as many as I can do or something like that. Just to try to, you know, get rid of that. Some of that fatigue you're describing too. Yeah. And that's us ultimately what you're doing. Like mm -hmm. a big part of how I train is I train with a lot of auto regulation. And this is obviously because I'm training a bunch of different things. And a lot of the people that I train are doing a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. So that combined with real life, there are just times where, you know, maximal strength can fluctuate 10 to 25% on the, on the day, just depending on how you slept, how you feel oh, psychologically, really? the, natural just physiological mechanisms that are out of your control and don't really even matter like to, they don't matter long term to you so the reality is you want to auto regulate training a little bit while also giving yourself some structure and like i said there's an art to that um the you just want useful heuristics that you can take so that you make consistent progress over time without grinding yourself out and ultimately the way you often need to spur on progress is through a novel stimulus mm -hmm. and sometimes that can be something as changing something in the workout like the rep range mm -hmm. you might do the same exercise but say you know what instead of doing you know uh three sets to failure at eight to ten reps i'm gonna do um you know four sets of 25 and really get a big metabolic burn and mm -hmm. just do this to, for two to three weeks and you kind of you change the stimulus slightly and you sort of get like this mini dose of noob gains yeah. as an advanced athlete because you're doing something you haven't done for a while or haven't done before even though you're overall a more advanced person and that's really how you spur on consistent strong progress uh when you get more advanced that's what i do and i'm in charge of doing with all my clients yeah i imagine when you're working with like elite level athletes it's hard to give them something they've never really 
had to handle before. Have you come into that problem a lot? To be honest, it's obviously a little bit trickier than with beginners, but with a lot of athletes, like athletes that are not strength athletes, it's not actually too, too difficult to do that mm. because the reality is, and people don't know this, but a lot of athletes hate lifting weights. Huh. I, we, we like encourage it. And, and I have part of my job is just selling you on it. Like I'm not even selling you as a client or whatever, but if you're on our team, at the gym and we would get you to kind of like buy into strength and conditioning so that you can win your fight. So you can win your jujitsu competition. We want you to stay healthy and do this. And they have these, like I said, a lot of people culturally just feel like nervous about it. They don't like it. And they also don't enjoy it. A lot of people don't like athletes want to play their sport. They don't want to show up and deadlift. They're mm. like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I, I, it sucks. When you work with a lot of college athletes, you'll notice this immediately. So many people are like, they're talented. They're amazing athletes. They're amazing at soccer. They're amazing at shot put, what have you. Well, maybe not shot put. They usually tend to live. <laughs> but, you know, basketball players are notorious for this. When you get them to show up to the gym, that's a win and of itself. Mm -hmm. Getting them to show up to the session is a win and of itself because they just, they hate that stuff. So they often have a lot of things they haven't done because you're always fighting an uphill battle, just getting them to kind of like buy into the idea of strength and conditioning and what it does for them. And, uh, and they usually have less weight training uh, history than someone who's purely weight training. Mm -hmm. It's usually guys that are advanced bodybuilders, advanced uh, power lifters and other strength athletes that have kind of done everything under the sun. Yeah. And I typically don't deal with anyone that's so advanced, at least in my line of work. I don't deal with anyone that's so advanced that I can't find ways to change up the stimulus in a way that's productive. I, I have enough variations and variations don't need to be so dramatic that, um, that that would really get in the way, at least for me, I to see. be honest. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And I've noticed that too. Some people are just naturally really gifted athletes and they have been their whole yeah. life. And so it's when they come to the next level in college, for instance, which is where a lot of them end up. Um, it's the first time they have to get in the gym. And sometimes it's like, I almost don't want to mess with that winning formula. Mm. I'm like, they're already doing great. What can I do to just give them the minimum effective dose and keep them healthy and just make sure I don't accidentally break the thing while trying to make it better. Yeah. And I don't mean hurt them. I just mean like, I'm thinking maybe if I do get them to invest a ton in strength and conditioning, you know, maybe that makes them feel weird. Maybe they're stressed out. Maybe it messes with their routine, their headspace. These things matter when it comes to actually playing in a game. Um, and uh, some people just really don't like it. I mean, something as simple as there might not be anything functionally wrong with a training program that I give someone. But if I can just tell it psychologically, they really despise it. I don't necessarily want to go down that route too far because I want the person to be in a good mood. I want the person feeling good at least a third of the time. Um, you know, athletes are often not feeling so good. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, those are all like little intangibles that you only understand through working with people over time and working with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people all the time. Uh, usually it's usually a very young trainer that thinks they have this like super secret special move that's going to make everyone a beast or whatever. And then you realize in practice, it just doesn't always plan out that way. Like I said, it's an art, not a science. I think we've covered so much interesting fitness information, but what I like to do with these podcasts is kind of give people an opportunity to hear things that maybe they can't read about on your Twitter. So something that I find really interesting is that the fitness niche, niche, whatever, is so competitive and how every one of these fitness influencers like yourself, like Ox, like um, some of the more mo mobility focused guys in the jungle, they're trying to 
make themselves more identifiable, just making a lane for themselves. So I think I know your answer, but how are you trying to differentiate yourself among the many fitness influencers out there? That's an extremely good question. Um, and it's something obviously I think about, but I'll be, you know, I'll be perfectly candid with you. I just am being myself. And that sounds really cliche. I, I'm not necessarily even saying that that advice will be the best for anyone else. It just kind of think, I think it happens to be for me because I think what I am offering and my takes on things are somewhat unique. You know, I don't have a gigantic following on Twitter, but I'm growing a decent one. And I certainly have a fairly dedicated one. I think the people that are interested in what I have to say are very interested. Um, I have a lot I can talk about across a variety of subjects. I really love this. I'm extremely passionate. Um, and the people that like what I have to offer are very, you know, very uh, engaged with it, we'll say. I don't really have to seek differentiation too much because I think my divergence from what most general fitness coaches are providing is already just built into what I'm actually doing. I don't have to manufacture it. It's actually there. Mm -hmm. uh, that also makes it more authentic, in my opinion. I'm not selling you on something special about what I'm doing. It just actually mm -hmm. is somewhat different. Um, and I'll also tell you the reality is that nine, 80 to 90% of success, I, I call this, I call this myself the convergence of wisdom. Most strength training and fitness stuff, it actually overlaps and everyone finds the same things work because that's how you find truth, right? The th same things that work across the broad spectrum of individuals, that's how you find reality and that's how you find truth and things. 80 to 90% of what we're all going to say, we're, we're going to agree on. And then people succeed in business uh, versus training where they diverge. And that's really like the more you diverge, the better your marketing usually but sometimes you diverge so far that it becomes a scam. I'm really just trying to provide positive stuff that's useful and grow, slowly grow a quality following rather than maybe rapidly grow, a, perhaps this isn't the most articulate word, but a goofy following, if that makes sense. So many guys that have these massive followings across social media platforms, I, I really don't like to say anything negative. Uh, usually I like to keep it on a positive spin, but there is a reality where there's a lot of guys that are very popular and are either just not really that good, but just kind of have the right face voice and market themselves well with silly things. And some people really are scam artists mm. and I've called those people out as well. I completely agree, especially after having this conversation. I think the strength coach angle with an MMA athlete specifically, like you're trying to make people the peak level of human experience, you know, like fighters, but you're also trying to make them healthy for the long term. Like it's super interesting what you're putting them through. I mean, it, it's ideal in some ways. Yeah, I mean that was what I. It's, I guess peak performance and just being the the ultimate yeah. human. That was just what I always wanted to be since I was a kid. The beauty of the hybrid athlete philosophy: you can do everything. So even if someone who is a specialist can beat you somewhere, you can still win in a contest because you you can beat them on all the other avenues, mm -hmm. right? And that's why that's the beauty of it. And I really enjoyed that. And it really helped me tremendously in my career. And I also feel that I am the healthiest I've ever been and the, the best I've ever been in a variety of ways. I feel great. I move great. I can do whatever without fear of getting hurt. And, uh, you know, a lot of friends of mine, even friends that are in their mid-20s, you know, it's like they go play basketball and just tear their hamstring going for a layup. Totally. That's, em that's embarrassing, right? But that's really, <laughs> it's not an age thing. It's because you just never take care of yourself. And, you know, if you were playing basketball, if you were running, jumping, 
and training everything properly, you'd be able to do that. But you're already an old man at 25. Yeah, I totally, totally understand that. Like, uh, I'm in my work soccer league and I get worried about these guys. They're going to pull a hammy or something like because they're running around with pot bellies. Like, what do you expect is going to happen? This is the one time you run the entire week and you're trying to sprint out here. Like, it's pretty funny, but. Yeah, I talk about that all the time with sprinting, especially because I advocate so much. But yeah, that's the thing. It's like you didn't get slow or get old just because of the clock you're really you're like that because it's like you haven't sprinted in 15 years if you just did with some level of regularity and train your hamstrings and your hips well plenty of professional athletes are doing excellent in their late 30s and i remember i I forget i forget who it is but someone on twitter recently talked about they're trying to hit like a four seven or something um sprint time and he's in his early 40s um and i was i I love that i was like dude that's amazing people need to see you do that because you can do something there that i can't which is actually be the, the visual element of saying like, look, I can still do track and field when I'm in my forties. And I share videos uh, with my peers a lot of masters divisions, track and field. That's the best thing is seeing old 70 year old guys do long jump, uh, jump, jump over hurdles. You need to see those things so you can develop a better relationship with what training can give you and what the actual reality of like, biological aging and your biological response to life really is a lot of people give up after like 25 they think it's like downhill and that's bad caretaking for the population uh by allowing people to believe those things because the downstream effects are tremendously bad for the rest of their life if you're getting old at 30 if you're getting old at 35 40 like that you know that's really going to be bad when you're 60 70 80 years old and now your grandkids who are trying to buy a house and figure out their life with all their problems. And now they got to take care of grandma and grandpa. Totally, totally, totally. And I think this is something I talked about with fighter was just like the lack of competition in your life. It seems to end when you graduate college, that seems to be the end point of the physicality or the physical competition, um, which is so wrong. And it's so antithetical to human beings like human beings have to compete their entire lives to survive at every other time in history except for our own right now so it it's like unnatural to be so sedentary this conversation is making me think like I got up early this morning and I did my upper body workout and then I sat at my desk all day by every measure that's above average to at least have gone to the gym but I really need to go do cardio or walk around on the Stairmaster or the treadmill after work too. Cause otherwise I just lifted weights. Like I didn't really push myself physically. I didn't stretch out. Like there's so many things I could have done. I really should focus on some of those other things too. One thing that people get confused about with when I advocate this stuff is to say, well, I'm busy and you know, I only have so much time to work out and you know, how hybrid, how the absolute clock am I supposed to train all 12 of these things that you think is important? Uh, You know, screw it. I'm just going to get jacked and whatever happens to me happens to me. The way that I do it is I'm always trying to increase efficiency. A lot of my, you know, I talk about how I don't really love stretching. A lot of my mobility work and a lot of my um, orthopedic health stuff and all those stuff you want to add into lifting is built into exercise selection and program design. So like, I'm a big fan of, you know, what, what I did yesterday with a friend of mine, uh, I don't go to commercial gyms all the time, but I've been going with a buddy of mine who has these issues with his back and his hips and whatnot. And he's been having them for years. And the other day he's like, well, I got to do this stretch and I got to do this stuff. I was like, can we try this? Just did the workout. And it didn't involve like these crazy warmups. It barely involved the warmup. 
Um, and we didn't do any of his special, like, you know, therapy exercises. We just trained and we just got stronger. We got faster. We just did all the stuff that we did. Took us, you know, 55 minutes. And he's like, my back feels good. And I, I was able to squat deep like crazy. And it's really because in, in an invisible way, the mobility work and the joint angles and the rotation stuff that I want him to do is built into the exercises that I chose for him to do. So you're still getting your muscle stimulus. You're still getting your strength stimulus, but you're also getting your mobility and perhaps sometimes even a conditioning stimulus in what we're doing all overlapping. I'm killing two, three, four birds with one stone. Can you give me an example of a alternate exercise that you would suggest that involves mobility? I'll say some classic exercises done properly with good rep quality, which is usually what gets in the way of most people. You know, good exercise, like I talk about a stiff-legged deadlift. I think a stiff-legged deadlift is amazing for a lot of people with, you know, very tight hamstrings. It's mostly because they don't engage their hamstrings very well. With RDLs, they're using more glutes. So using a stiff-legged deadlift with good rep quality does wonders for a lot of people. But I do a lot more than that. That's more... Um, that's more dynamic in the way that you move. One is like, I will start a lot of workouts with these like get ups and like rolling around on the ground. Um, you know, and credit to a uh, credit to a guy, Bill Hartman, which is where I got a lot of the stuff and this stuff, I think will be more common in the next few years. Uh, but I'm an advocate of it. And I use it all the time. It's done wonders for me. I do a lot of weird exercises like arm bar cross yeah. and stacks on the ground. Um, where you're kind of rolling. It would be hard to just tell you what they are. Cause <laughs> I would really have to show you. But uh, they kind of give you a strength stimulus. They'll work the abs, the shoulders, on the adductors while also getting you to rotate. Um, I like single arm dumbbell uh, RDLs. You are doing a single leg Romanian deadlift with a dumbbell, but the dumbbell is held on the opposite side of the leg that's working. And when you rotate down and you kind of hip hinge down, you're almost touching your toe with the opposite side arm. And mm. what that does is it creates a rotational component into the RDL while still working the glutes and the hamstrings. It works the glute better, in my opinion, because when you internally rotate at the hip, it stretches the glute more and you get more hypertrophy. Um, but at the same time, you also get your hips to internally rotate and your spine to rotate just slightly, which isn't dangerous at all. Um, and it feels very good. And you get all these elements in where people feel like I'm stiff all the time. Again, you don't get stiff because you deadlifted. You get stiff because you're remaining stiff and never training rotation. Um, if you do these exercises as your, you know, second, third, fourth exercise of the day, often you get that rotational component in the hips and the spine all in one. And we didn't have to do three or four exercises. We just did one. Yeah, I've never done the across the body. We I call them bird dips. I don't know if anyone else calls them that, but the single legged RDL. I'll try it. I have really tight hips, so I'll let you know how it works. You already have a diversified niche, 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 um, and it's going to grow over time. I'm pretty confident in that. But what are the goals that you're driving to? And I mean, I saw you started a YouTube channel. I want to talk about it because I want to hear some thoughts and some tips. Um, I, I honestly will say that I try to not be too cerebral about it. Like some people have conversations with me um about like social media strategy and all this stuff and i'm like for me it re like i said i really am just kind of like throwing myself out there and people tend to have a positive response i guess things that people tend to like are short form video what i intend to do is put a lot more video out there in 2023 um and, uh, and that's really where I think I'm going to drive things out because that's where a lot of people want to see the fitness stuff. 
Uh, frankly, with fitness, the reality is, especially athletes, like they don't want to read anything, right? You can barely get them to lift half the time. They don't want to read. They just, they just show them the video. And with an athlete in particular, they're excellent at just seeing something and repeating it perfectly the first time. So it's like, that's uh, Instagram really is like the place for that stuff. Um, so I intend to grow the Instagram with a lot of short form video and short quips. Um, a lot of stuff too is a lot of people that are fans of my stuff and I'm fans of other people's stuff is actually just other coaches. Uh, when I start talking about the nitty gritty of things, it's usually not to clients, but it's rather to like other coaches who just love the industry and love working in it. Um, I'm not that unique. I, I am unique enough that I can grow, but the reality, there are, other, there are other people and I didn't really realize until I got online. There are other people out there that actually think the same as me and have a lot of similar takes. Uh, like I said, convergence of wisdom. We have similar concepts that we found from different places. Um, and, uh, and they, you know, there are people on the internet that share ideas like that with me. So I actually like to interact with a lot of other coaches on Instagram. And I also have some big plans for how I'm going to expand offers that I make in the next year, which I think will automatically drive a lot of traction. People tend to respond most to hot takes, dissonant opinions, um, people like that. And I just, sometimes I share a few of them, but sometimes <laughs> I'm just saying what I feel and being authentic and people vibe with that. Yeah. I think it's going to be an interesting line that you walk between the short form and the gigabrain information because you obviously are extremely knowledgeable about the subject. If you start using words that people don't understand, I have a feeling retention would be tough on those, but that's where all the interesting content is. I, I'm definitely, there's a way you can do it. it. just needs to be carefully, artfully done and probably something you just got to test out um, because that's the mass market. That's one thing. That's one thing I'm trying to work on is uh, I need, you need to find a way to, and there are certain, certain people in the industry that have done a great job of doing this. And sometimes they do such a good job of distilling a useful, complicated information into such a low IQ, like dumb person able to absorb what's being said type of way that they actually don't get credit for it. People just actually assume that they're not that knowledgeable or good in the first place. There are some mm. people in the industry that are so good at appealing to the average person that would, would be hopeless otherwise, that that's where their content is geared. And people don't know that if you actually sit down with that person, they're very knowledgeable and very intelligent, but their content that they produce is so watered down for that, for that population that um, while still getting the effective message across that people don't know any better, they think, oh, that's all that person has to offer. It's not really true, but that, that ironically, that's a sign of their genius. Right. Totally, totally, totally. I haven't gone that deep in TikTok. You know, I, I, I don't love TikTok that much, but maybe I'll use oh, it. Yeah. Um, but that's a place where I, I guarantee you, if, if all I can do is you get people to add sprints and jumps into their workouts or whatever, I guarantee you I'd be getting some people to do so just from a few TikTok videos. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't have TikTok on my phone because it's Chinese spyware, which definitely reduces the usefulness um, the desktop, it's really hard to search for things. And like, if you don't interact, it doesn't offer you good competitors to look at. Like, it's really hard to search. Yeah, that's, I actually don't like the way TikTok's set up just because it's harder to find things like you just said. So I, I do prefer Instagram. Instagram has exposed me to more um, really like useful, insightful content than TikTok has. TikTok has more, when I go on there, it's more like jokes or like silly yeah. little things and that's fine i get why people like that it's just it's not my vibe i'm looking for things that have utility 
Anything else that you'd really like to talk about? Um, not really. I think we covered most things. I really appreciate you having me my time on here. I guess the only thing I would talk about is I uh, I just spent this week uh, just not sleeping for three days so I could put together uh, a very nice program, talk about what we just talked about. I guess I'll just shamelessly plug that. Uh, that basically gives you a template and gives you everything you need to know about how to apply a lot of the things that I've just been talking about. Um, I'm going to update it with more posts and more things to give you more variability on the stuff that you can do over the next uh, few weeks as we go to Christmas and New Year's. But um, a lot of the stuff we talked about, I'm assuming, I always get questions, people saying, well, how do I start doing this? That's a good place to start. Awesome. And what will that be called? Uh, I wrote, I titled it the Combat Ready Program the other night. Okay. Um, and uh, I published it at like, I think midnight last night. So it's just up there for anyone that wants it. And it's just the one problem I have with it is it's like, and I'm not even just saying this for marketing purposes or anything. I mean, like literally I started it as a small thing, but I'm such a perfectionist hmm. that I couldn't help but make it very in depth and put a lot in there. I basically wrote an entire book. It's like a hundred pages on my Google Docs. <laughs> um, there's no fluff in it either. Like everything in there is, I only added it because I had something I really wanted you to know about. And um and then I put it on there. I have no business. Uh, it's a horrible business decision on my part. Um, <laughs> $6. It's five, not even $6. It's $5 and 99 cents. Um, Whoa, you got to up that. Yeah, I know. As your so business I manager. I don't know if I'll leave it on there forever. Um, but uh, I promised it to the people that have been loyal subscribers all year and read my stuff. So for uh, the few hundred people that read that and want that now, they get that. And perhaps in the future, I'll sell it as its own product. You heard it here first. Every day you wait, it's going up in price, people. So make sure you get it now. Correct. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. I had a great time. I learned a ton and I'm excited to see the new stuff that you come up with. Sure thing. I hope it wasn't boring. I, I know I talk a lot. Uh, I, tried <laughs> keep, I tried to keep things concise and information heavy, um, but I, it means a lot that you had me on. Seriously, I, I really appreciate it. I love chatting with whoever. So it was a good time and I really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Everyone listening, make sure you go follow him on Twitter at your swag Hercules, right? Not hybrid athlete. What's yeah. Yeah. That's what it originally started with. Cause that's what people used to call me. Um, oh, that's funny. But, uh, but yeah, if you just type in hybrid athlete, you'll see it on all my other social media, Instagram, YouTube, it's just hybrid athlete fitness. Okay. Awesome. Everyone go follow him. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much.